Good morning, Veritas. How are we doing? Good to see you all. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan. I get the privilege of being a pastor here and always a joy to be in Urbana with you guys. Uh, you guys might know this. Parents in the room especially understand this. Daylight savings time is over. You know, a lot of people say like, oh, you get an extra hour of sleep and then you have little kids and it's like, no, you don't. Uh, but daylight savings time ending means something else is beginning, doesn't it? This season called winter. Uh, we're heading into winter and some of us even just dread saying that word winter because it comes with this idea of freezing cold days, scraping the windshield, you know, getting the ice off your door to even get it open. And we avoid the word because it comes with memories, feelings. And some of you know the, the series, uh, the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, where she creates this villain and calls him, he who must not be named. There's these words we avoid in our vocabulary because they're tied to something. And in the Howell household, we have several of them. I'll, I'll let you in on a couple. The first is Cocoa Melon. Again, if you're a parent in the room, you know why. Uh, we avoid Cocoa Melon. And we also avoid the word Hawkeyes in the Howell household. Now, some of you are like, okay, really, dude? Come on, man. We're not here to stir division, but uh, we avoid the word Hawkeyes because we're Cyclone fans. And we have a lot of bad memories that come with playing the Hawkeyes because we don't frequently win. It's tough. And think about it. Like within the church, there's words that we avoid or, or try not to use because they're tied to something negative. And I think near the top of that list is a word that we're going to see in our text today, not just once, but twice. And it's this word, religion. Religion. Here amongst the body, the gathered church, Christians, we, we do not like the word religion. And maybe it's because in 2012 there was a video that went viral uh, titled this, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And it popularized this approach to Christianity which said, let's stop calling it a religion and start calling it a relationship. I remember back when Facebook was still cool, people would like go on their Facebook profile and change their religion to in a relationship with Jesus. And I'm like, okay, corny. You're a Christian. Christianity is a religion. It just is, and we can't avoid it. So why do we have a problem with this word? Is religion itself bad? I mean, the Bible uses the word religion five different times, and it's actually neutral. It's not just used negatively, it's used positively, as we'll see it in our text today. And a lot of people have tried to drum up definitions of religion. It's a really hard word to define, but it's frequently equated with commands, doctrines, structures, and rituals. Does Christianity have those? Of course, it does. And when you think about Jesus Christ himself stepping onto the scene thousands of years ago, the question is, did Jesus observe religion? Of course. He frequently attended the synagogue. He came not to abolish or abandon the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
He founded the church as we know it today. He created what we know today as the church discipline process in Matthew 18 to help us hold one another accountable for holiness. He instituted the Lord's Supper, which we'll get to take later today together. And then he gives commands, right? Think about as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and he tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Christianity is a religion. So why do we have a problem with the word religion? It's because we have a problem with bad religion. We have bad memories with religion. We can call to mind ways that religion has been twisted or distorted and used in ways that are not helpful. I mean, many of us today know of religion that has been softened. I mean, the Bible actually foreshadows there will come a day where preachers will just say what you want to hear. They will tickle your ears. The truth gets diluted. Everybody is just loved. Everybody just gets along. There's no source of truth. And maybe you've been hurt by that before. You want somebody that's willing to tell you the hard truth. But more frequently seen is actually the other ditch where religion has been lorded over you. Maybe in an oppressive way. This like power structure that makes you feel shame and condemnation. That a standard is set before you that you know you can't measure up to. Sometimes religion has been used as a legalistic approach to God. If you would just X, Y, Z, then you can meet God's standard, and you have just felt overwhelmed, and you have checked out. You're like, that is not for me. Now, the question is, is that us? Right? Like, no way. Not Veritas Church. I mean, we're Bible people, right? If you would go look at our statement of faith, it's very evident. We believe that God's word is true. We're going to teach it. But we also believe you are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. And so the question is, can we have bad religion? I don't know if you know this, but we can. And part of why I know that is because you and me are in this room, right? Bad religion is much more pervasive than you might know. And so the question we have to ask is, how can we as a church family not practice bad religion? If Christianity is a religion and we don't want it to be bad, how can we ensure that our Christianity is good? Or how can we ensure that our Christianity is pure? That's where we're going today. We're going to be in James chapter 1. would love for you guys to open up your Bibles with me. We are picking back up, closing out this first chapter of James. And Matthew taught last week about what it means to be a doer of the word, right? James is telling, hey, it's not enough for us to just gather here on a Sunday morning and hear the teaching of God. We're called to not just hear it, but do something about it. And James is actually going to help us unpack and apply this more this morning. He's going to get really practical and talk about what it means or what it looks like to be a doer of the word. But before he does, he wants to tell us what 
it doesn't look like to be a doer of the word. So read this with me. James 1, verse 26. The word of God says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Whoa! That's strong language, right? He doesn't just say, oh, their religion is bad. He says their religion is worthless. It contains nothing good. It is of no value. And what is a mark of worthless religion, religion that is of no good or of no value? Well, he says here, it's marked by an inability to bridle your tongue. Now, we don't frequently use that word bridle today, but the original audience would have known just exactly what a bridle is, a small instrument or appliance that goes over the horse, the horse's face, right? Think about like Roman war horses. They had a bridle on them and it was meant to control the horse. This giant, powerful creature with a small appliance on its face, control, controlling your speech. And James has a lot more to say about controlling your speech. He spends the entire third chapter on this. And so if you're already convicted, just get ready for more, right? Can you control your speech? I mean, James is saying, if you can't, this might be a sign that your religion is worthless. And if you went and studied James 1.26, you might find that there are people that would say, hey, this is talking about your inability to control your speech in such a way that you gossip, you lie, you curse, you swear, right? It's a violation of Ephesians 4.29, which will be up on the screen, where Paul writes to believers in Ephesus, and he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Wow, that is a high standard of speech to say that you would only speak that which is good for building up and that it may give grace to those who hear. So if that's the standard, for sure, I can look out at this room and say, we all have fallen short of that command. I don't even need to know what you talk like in the workplace or how you might lie to somebody at home. I don't even need to know that because this is such a high standard of speech that it's like, okay, maybe that's what James is getting at. But I would like for you guys to look at James 1.26 in context and say, what might he be talking about when it comes to an inability to bridle one's tongue? Because it says that this inability to bridle our tongue can deceive our hearts and make us think that we're religious. So maybe James isn't just talking about lying, gossiping, and swearing. Maybe he's talking about your ability to talk the religious talk, right? That you can't bridle your tongue in such a way that you trick yourself into thinking you're religious. Eugene Peterson was a Presbyterian minister. He wrote the book, The Message. Many of you might be familiar with that. And he writes this about James 1.26. He translated it to say, Anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. That hits different. It's not just about 
lying or gossiping or swearing. It's we can trick ourselves by knowing all the right answers, even on the topic of our religion. We're fooling ourselves into thinking that our Christianity is legitimate by not just hearing the truth, like we talked about last week, but being able to recite it. I mean, this is challenging for me. I don't know if it is for you, but when I come home after a long day work and I'm interacting with my kids, and here's what I know to be true of God's character. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I know that God has entrusted children to me to model his character to them. Can I be patient with my kids? I know that God has come to satisfy my soul Right? Psalm 16, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But am I satisfied in God? Even though I know he's all satisfying, am I actually satisfied in him? Or am I running to other things? I know that God's word is alive and active. All scripture is God-breathed. I have access in this very book to encounter a living God. But do I read it? Right? We can know all the right answers, but our answers not be genuine. And I don't know about you guys. We were, as a part of the Veritas reading plan, in Mark 10 recently. And there's this section where Jesus tells the children to come to him. And he ends up saying, uh, to such belongs the kingdom of God. And I remember reading that text years ago and thinking, oh, there is this like innocent nature of children that like God gives the kingdom to people who are pure and innocent. And then I had kids and I'm like, that's not what he means, right? This can't be a pure and innocent matter. Good example for you. Uh, last weekend on Saturday, it's hanging out at home with the family and one of my kids picks up this giant plastic toy, and I'm talking like this big, okay? It's about as big as a football helmet, and he just chucks it at my face, like on purpose. It drills me in the chin, like started to swell up pretty good, and uh, this kid found out he was in trouble. He knew he shouldn't have done it, right? Pulled him aside, uh, had a conversation. He's crying. He's like, daddy, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, okay. He knows he messed up. He apologized around the Howell household. We, we operate on grace as best as we can, right? And I say, I forgive you. You know, don't do it again, right? And uh, later that night, after we had gone to the pumpkin patch, may I note, okay, went to the pumpkin patch. We're sitting at the dinner table and he's acting up at the dinner table. And so I go over and I correct him and I say, hey, it's time to eat your food. We're not playing at the dinner table. And he says, daddy, don't tell me what to do or I'll hit you in the face again. And I'm like, okay. I don't know if that apology was very sincere, right? He knew the right answer. He knew to say, daddy, I'm sorry, but maybe, maybe he gave the right answer because he wanted to go to the pumpkin patch. Not because... He was actually sorry because he was willing to drill me again, wasn't he? (laughs) So the question for us is, what command do you know that you're not being obedient to? What promise can you recite that you are not actually believing in or satisfying yourself with? 
This is not just a three-year-old problem. This is a 31-year-old problem. You see, being a doer is not a matter of knowing the right answers or merely talking the right way. James tells us this is what being a doer of the word looks like. This is what pure religion looks like. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So pure religion is not about answers we can talk about, but actually seems to be actions we can take. There's fruit of our life that can be observable based upon what we actually do. And James talks about two different things we can look at. The first is a compassion for the helpless, right? Pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, culturally speaking to James' audience, orphans and widows were the most helpless and vulnerable population known. If they could not earn an income, which they couldn't, they were disqualified from any form of state provision and left without protection. They were deemed helpless. And this original audience had to be thinking of Isaiah 1, right? Their ancestors had been scolded for this before. Isaiah 1, where God uses the prophet Isaiah to go and say, hey, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Israel showing up to worship, lifting their hands, praying the right prayers, and God is saying, I'm not listening to you because here's this issue. You have no compassion. He calls them to learn to do what is good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. That's Isaiah 117. He's calling his people, a people for his own possession, to model his character to a watching world. And so how is that going for us? To have compassion for the helpless. Yes, maybe it is real orphans and real widows in our communities. But also, it could be far beyond that. How are we doing in caring for the single mothers who have three or four jobs, who are struggling to care for their children, make ends meet, how are we doing in caring for them? How are we doing in caring for families that are raising children with disabilities? How are we doing coming alongside them and caring for them? How are we doing caring for the elderly who might be left with more work around the house than they can reasonably manage? How are we doing caring for them? And you will note here that this is not a matter of just giving out assets. Because James says, here the call is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit them. Think about that. That requires real relational equity. To not just give handouts, but to get to know the hearts of these people and know what do they actually need and how can we come alongside them. It's messy. It's hard. You've got to get your hands dirty to really care for helpless people. And you might ask, why would this be a mark of pure Christianity? If he only gives two in James 1.27, why would this be one of them? 
Well, I would tell you it's because this is the very heart of God. This is the very heart of God. Psalm 68, 5 says this about God's character. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. We serve a God that is compassionate, who looks down at a helpless people, and he is moved. He is stirred with affection. Think about this with Jesus, right? Matthew 9, he looks out at the masses, and he says, it says this, Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, That's how God has looked at you. Someone who was once dead in your sins and trespasses, unable to measure up and get yourselves to him. So he sent Jesus for you because he was stirred with compassion. And Ephesians 1 uses this adoption language that we have been adopted into the family of God. As Jesus is about to ascend, he tells His disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to come to you. Christian, we are recipients of great compassion. And now the call is, if we want to claim the name of Christ, we must be willing to show the compassion of Christ. But that's not it. That's not the only fruit here, because... James 1.27 also says, and. So there is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Not just a compassion for the helpless, but a concern for our personal holiness. A concern for our holiness. Now, you might read that and say, keep oneself unstained from the world. Maybe what James is saying is, let's all go live on a Christian convent. Like, let's just get out of the world. Does that sound good to anybody here? It doesn't to me. Just saying. Like, I love you guys. That would not be good. Not a good thing. And we would actually violate the purpose of why we're here. Right? Jesus in John 17 prayed, Father, keep them in the world, though they are not of the world. You know, we are to be a light in the darkness, a city on a hill. So, if we're not called to just like, remove ourselves from the world and like live in this Christian bubble, what are we called to do? The call is to refuse to be given over to the values and behaviors of the broken world we live in. To not just give yourself over to fitting in with the rest of the world. Can we all agree that we live in a broken world? We do. And there's several things that if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we go along with. I mean, thinking about pleasure, how the world finds pleasure. We already talked about, you know, Jesus came that he might satisfy our souls, that we wouldn't give ourselves over to this ideal view of comfort. It's not just about lake houses and vacations. It's not just about staying home and cuddling up on a couch and watching football. Not that those are necessarily bad, but if that's where we find our comfort, not in God himself... Maybe we're missing it. What about this, like, climb to power? You know, I just want to climb the corporate ladder. Or I want to run my own business so nobody can tell me what to do, right? I don't want to answer to somebody, not when I can set my own work hours. 
when I can make my own living and not be dependent upon anybody, this pursuit of wealth, right? What about popularity? You ever struggled with that one? I know I have. It's a desire to fit in. And I think that's maybe the greatest threat to us being unstained from this world is a desire to fit in. And it's not just an us problem. I mean, look back at the people of God, Israel. They wanted to fit in. In Exodus 32, when Moses was interacting with the God of the universe who was to give them commands of how to function, how to live, how to obey him, and they said, well, this is getting uncomfortable. This is not as fun. This is not as easy as the pagan world around us, which has structures that they can bow down to, structures they can see and bow down to and give themselves over to. Let's make ourselves a golden calf. Let's just fit in with the pagan world. Let's have idols we can worship. How did that go for them? Not well. Or think about the idea of, hey, God is your king. You don't need an earthly king. Well, Israel said, Yes, we do, right? First Samuel 18, they demanded an earthly king so that they could fit in with the nations around them. How did that go? Not well. And so, if we have to watch the same shows, listen to the same music, participate in the same weekend activities, talk the same way or dress the same way just in the name of fitting in, There is a charge or a command to us to say, keep yourself unstained from the world. And maybe one way that you can take a pulse on this is to say, if somebody you know who doesn't follow Jesus became a Christian, what in your life would they have to give up in order to be obedient to Scripture? Right? To think about a non-believing friend, to look out at your life and to say, if I were to become a Christian, I would have to give up X, Y, Z. Is there anything they would have to give up? That's challenging. We are called to be cautious of what we consume, to be aware of our environment that is actually out to stain us, to take out this Christ-likeness that we are called to be set apart for. And again, you might ask, why would this be a mark of pure Christianity? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Again, this is the very heart of God. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now this unstained language is the same language that's used in 1 Peter 1.19. Looking at the person and work of Jesus, who God steps down into a broken world, puts on flesh, and for more than 30 years 
lives a holy life, a perfect life as a lamb without blemish or spot. And praise be to God, we now, those who have put their faith in Jesus, are marked by his perfection. It's not about our ability to measure up and attain perfection, but Peter is telling us your positional holiness ought to impact your practical holiness. Because Jesus has ransomed you from your former ignorance and your futile ways, here's what you are called to do. Leave those behind. What a sweet invitation, church. I used to look at this idea of be holy as a hindrance in my life. And now when I look at 1 Peter 1, what an invitation that God would say, hey, now because of what Jesus has done for you, because he has sent the helper, has not left you as an orphan, here's what you are free to do. Leave behind the ways of your former ignorance and your futile ways. Be holy. Be obedient. Care about the sin that is waging war on your heart, on your soul, on your life. I love how 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this about keeping yourself unstained from the world. He said, I would like to see a Christian not kept in a glass case away from trial and temptation, but yet covered with an invisible shield so that wherever he went, he would be guarded and protected from the evil influences that are in the world in almost every place. You have to believe Charles Spurgeon knew far and well that this is what we have access to. That when Jesus departed, he actually did send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who he says in John 14, 26, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have access to this Holy Spirit that can help keep you unstained from the world. If we would walk according to the Spirit. Slow down. Listen. Feel conviction. And obey. And it is for your good. And so church, there's three applications I'd love for us to consider. The first, all of us have in common. And the first is this, to look up. Look up. As you consider what it might look like to bridle your tongue or to have more compassion for the helpless, both those in our communities and even those inside of our church, as you consider what it might look like to be holy, you have to feel this overwhelming sense of, I can't do it. And I'm telling you, you're right. You cannot be perfect. Look up. Look to the perfect one, Jesus Christ himself, who has been perfect and has made a way for you to repent and be near, to have right relationship with the Father, to be satisfied in him forever. Look up. And yes, from that place, we are called to take really practical action. This positional holiness to lead to practical holiness, real action steps, and as I just know people in this room, as I know the church at large, we tend to gravitate towards one or the other. You tend to gravitate towards either 
I care a lot about compassion in other people. Or you might say, I care a lot about theology and understanding my own sin and carving it out of my life. And the beautiful thing in this text is each side is challenged, right? To the person who is prone to just look in, you know, and really care about your own holiness, the charge for here for you is to look out, to be willing to actually get your eyes off of yourself in such a way that you can see the people around you who have real needs, that you can come alongside and help meet, to show compassion, to be stirred with affection, and to show them the love of Christ. And maybe that comes really naturally for you. You're really quick to look out and see other people's needs and to give them meals and to, you know, minister to them. But maybe you've been struggling to diagnose your own heart. And the call for you is to not look out, but maybe to rather look in, to slow down. And rather than to be distracted by much serving, to be able to sit at Jesus' feet and say, where am I not being obedient What is a lie that I've been believing? What is a promise that I have not been beholding? Would you be willing to look in? And what would be incredible, church, is if we would embody this, and rather than looking across the aisle at the people that are wired differently than you in dividing, that you would link arms and do ministry together. Right? That's what the church is meant to do, to be united by faith. To have someone who is marked more by, hey, we should look out, we should care for people, for you to be willing to say, you're right, and we should talk about sin in our own lives, to link arms and to do ministry together. I was so struck at Paul Campbell's celebration of life. Lori talked about you know, their marriage in such a beautiful way, right? And she was like, man, Paul was much quicker to, you know, look in, to shepherd other people's hearts, to talk about hard truth. And she said, I was much more compassionate and and willing to help meet needs and take care of people. And she said this, and together we made one good Christian. And I'm like, amen. What a picture for us as a church, right? Veritas Urbana, to not just be marked by compassion, to not just be marked by a concern for holiness, but to bring them together and to practice pure Christianity. Imagine what that might actually look like to a watching world. I think of this city on a hill language, right? Light in the darkness language. And Jesus said that we would actually do this in Matthew 5, that we would be a people in the world, right? So that our good works would be seen before them. But do you know what the outcome is in Matthew 5? That as other people see our good works, here's what they do. They give glory to our Father who is in heaven, right? That's Veritas' mission statement to raise up mature disciples who care about our holiness, to send out everyday missionaries, people who want to share the compassion of Christ and 
let people know about the good news of Jesus. And here's the end result, that we would be a church that gives all the glory to God. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's a church you would love to be a part of. So I'd love to pray for us to that end, that we would be a church that truly is a light of the world church to give God all the glory. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you. Thank you for your great mercy, your great compassion that you have had on us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us. And what an invitation to leave behind the passions of our former ignorance, to be set free from our futile ways, to get to enjoy you forever. God, I pray for this church that we would be a people marked by compassion for the helpless, that we would have great mercy and extend great grace to those around us, and that we would have a deep concern for our holiness, that we would be holy as you are holy. And God, we pray that this would not just be for our good, but ultimately would be for your glory, that as we live out obedience, that more and more people would be drawn to a saving relationship with Christ, all for your namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.